Um, I'm Valerie Sinison. I'm a child therapist and adult analyst and poet, and I'm very delighted to introduce our artist for this evening, David Blandy. Um, we're all going to watch his film in a minute together um, before we have a discussion so that you've got a chance to feel it, observe it, and have your own thoughts, comments, and questions to bring so that after we've seen the film, there'll be a conversation together and then very much opening it up for, for discussion. So before we, we look at some of the other influences on it, would you, would you mind telling everybody what it was about that family experience that made a film seem the right way of working it out? <laughs> um, I suppose the film aspect of it, 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 and a lot of my work starts off as performance, really. Um, this idea of trying to think about the psychological space that one inhabits in, and, and, and trying to um, deal with your relationship to a certain space. So um, and in previous works, I've journeyed around New York trying to find all the record shops that... I, uh, sorry, not the record shops, all the places that I'd heard of from songs. So this sort of relationship between the kind of romanticisation of somewhere and then the, the reality... Um, and so, and I've been kind of continuing in that vein for a few years, trying developing different characters for different uh, situations, different scenarios. And so, when it came to trying to tackle this event, and it was, it's just sort of, it was, it was my my mode of working, if you get what I mean. Like it was uh, to to create a character. To uh, I knew that I wanted to go to Hiroshima and really the original idea for the film was just to to be in Hiroshima and just the the fact of existence in this place that potentially I destroyed in some ways so it's sort of this almost a return of a, a ghost or or kind of insertion of this um I don't know this kind of reminder of a, a past event into into just the present situation. Uh, and I kind of thought about it initially as something almost as banal as that, and then a recording of that performance. And the recordings of the performances that I've done have become more and more ingrained in trying to think about um, filmic language and how um, we define ourselves through kind of film, the fantasy of film, really, um, and that sort of language. So... Um, before we went out there, Claire and I, because Claire does all the camera work, um, it's my wife, um, talked about kind of how to, what, what kind of filming to do, and, and we're both big fans of Ozu, um, the Japanese filmmaker. Um, and so we thought, as a homage to him, to try and, try and in some ways, kind of film in, in, in his sort of style, quite low camera work. Uh, very static shots um, and also often in some of my other films have been very kind of very kind of large like it's been much more about me in the landscape rather than the landscape with me as a kind of incidental element in it and I wanted it much more to be to be that sort of relationship that, that sort of I'm almost incidental sometimes in this sort of in the larger city that the city's like the the emphasis and then um, we got out there and, and well, on, on the way there, of course, sort of having a panic of, what, what do we do with Phoebe, you know? <laughs> <laughs> how are we going uh, to keep her out of the shot? We can't just kind of put her in a buggy the whole time, like, it's just, just a, which we had done on the previous film called Crossroads, where we'd gone to the, tried to find the crossroads where Robert Johnson, the bluesman, had sold his soul to the devil, and I was trying to get my soul back, you see there. But... Um, it, and for, she was only five months then, whereas now she was she was uh, almost two, and um, yeah, it was was less repressible. And, and then of course, yeah, of course, she's got to be in it. It kind of makes so much more sense the whole film and everything. And, and out of that kind of practical necessity, in a way, the heart was put into the film. I think I, I think it would have been a much drier um, and less less complicated film. <laughs> 
without yeah. without Phoebe in it. Um, because partly because I'm quite <coughs> philosophically, I'm quite happy for me not to exist. That's fine. But f- for me, Phoebe has to exist. <laughs> she's you know she's my daughter. She has to be. So it sort of gives an extra kind of another twist to it, which I don't for me emotionally, which which. And I don't know if that's transmitted through, through the film, but it kind of it gave the the kind of the filming and then the editing of it a different kind of emphasis and uh, an urgency, I guess. And I don't know if other people felt that too. That it felt so natural the way she was there and filmed. It didn't feel posed or studied. And something about another generation on skipping and singing mm. in a place that was enormous pain two generations back was really disturbing and moving and hopeful over human resilience across the generations yeah i mean the the, the you know of course it's it's an edited film we had we had what 10 12 hours of footage that we could put together and and it was very i, I thought those those moments of intimacy were like like in the um, when we were watching, I think it was Donald Duck together <laughs> on the on the internet in the in the, the little Ryukin that we were staying in the, the, the hotel room, and then that that moment of yeah the skipping through the recreation of the ruins of Hiroshima in the Peace Museum it sort of they seemed like there was such kind of natural moments which really emphasised that both her innocence but also yeah that disconnection of the past and present, but then they're, they're implicit sort of, uh, I don't know, the kind of physio, I guess. Well, at two generations on, that that Mickey Mouse floating there <laughs> should have been an object when it was from the enemy, and <laughs> um, that somehow what, what changes happen in a generation? Yeah, that, well, that floating figure is actually, um, it's a character created by the Japanese animator Tezuka called the um, Atom Boy and and he was one of the kind of one of the references for the child of the atom this this kind of fictional character Um, he's sort of but he got renamed Astro Boy kind of I think in the 80s I can't remember when exactly because of that connection to the atom and it being a bit, bit problematic um, but yeah, he's um, it's, and that's sort of the relate. Yeah, he's, he's like a sort of Pinocchio figure, like a, you know, a heart of atom, almost like a, a robot, but trying to be human in some ways. So, so it's sort of he, he was yeah, and that that floating around, and then it, it, it had a, a nice crossover with the the falling child of the atom stroke bomb because that that. That uh, that part, that sequence of the falling um, caped figure, mm. is taken from um, Barefoot Gen, this the cartoon of the Hiroshima bombing, um, based on an original manga by written by a survivor actually, um, and the the sequences of the bomb falling down and then the parachute on the bomb kind of opens and then then it explodes down at the bottom. And, Instead, I kind of superimposed the the character of the um, the child, the atom falling down slowly and then exploding. So uh, that was of one of the really, really moving moments that you've used the comic to be the serious dark side, mm-hmm. so that the ordinary filming was the easier tourist side. It wasn't easy because there yeah. was all that history. And in a way, it was a wonderful um, rejoinder to people that denigrate comics and don't <laughs> see what's serious in a comic. And that somehow, in in this film, all those elements in the comic were the most serious reality. Well, they were. Yeah, I mean, each of the the pieces that I was I was referencing. Um, there's the Fist of the North Star, which is. Um, based in a post-apocalyptic world. There's um, Akira, which talks about both um, yeah, a past apocalypse and then kind of an apocalypse happens during the film as well, to kind of round it off nicely. And then there's um, 
the barefoot gen itself, which was kind of a direct relationship to Hiroshima. And then, um, but all of them are sort of in, in a way like Godzilla, you know, they're, they're, they're almost uh, kind of cathartic reminders of this, this kind of, yeah, this cultural idea of, of um, really, yeah, the bomb in Japanese culture, I think. Um, it, it's it's hard to say whether I mean obviously with barefoot again, but with the other ones, there's sort of whether that sort of apocalyptic en- imagery would have happened anyway in the kind of eighties and nineties. But it seems like uh, there, there's such a kind of direct relationship that it seems undeniable almost that, that, that there's sort of it's trying to deal with this past trauma through recreating it in pop culture. You know, why have these things become so? This is that's you know the common the common plot line of anime, like like with Kung Fu, it's always like your teacher or master gets killed and then you have to avenge them. In in anime, it's um, something t- um, incredibly strange happens and then there's an apocalypse and then kind of the world is re- reborn in some sort of way. And that's that's kind of... It's that, that cycle of um, destruction and rebirth which um, I tried to echo in, in kind of this film in some ways because... Um, I know a lot of it started from my experience of going to Hiroshima in 2004, just with Claire before Phoebe was born, obviously. And and um, we were on a, a round Japan trip. You can get this uh, Japan rail pass, 21 days. You can go anywhere you like on the railway. Um, it's a really amazing thing. But um, And obviously I wanted to go to Tokyo, Kyoto. And then, well, we're going that way. Maybe we should go to Hiroshima because it's kind of a bit further down and and there was this I knew about uh, yeah my, that my grandfather believed this thing about um, he only survived because of the, the bombing and, and I, I felt like I needed to face that to, to try and try and deal with the reality of it um, and of course getting there um, here's this amazing youthful vibrant city you know I was expecting almost a wasteland kind of a few people wandering around in sort of uh, sackcloth or something <laughs> but, but instead it's, it's it's one of the youngest cities in Japan necessarily you know because there was nothing left really after the bombing um, and really yeah it's, it's that sort of the the pain but also the hope that was there see you know there were there were reminders of, of the bomb there's the peace museum there's this really annoying fly that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it thinks it's having a starring part that's right yeah. um yeah the peace museum which is all about um hiroshima the leading up to it the which is which i find just going to that museum itself i found really really enlightening it was like because uh, it both was dealing with like it has, it's conveniently located over two parts. You go, you do one part, and then you go over the bridge, which is the bit where you see me, me and Phoebe going towards the picture of the bomb on that. that um, I don't know if you remember. I'll kind of pick her up. Yeah. But that um, on on the first side is sort of the lead up to it, and it talks all about the the increasing militarism of Japan and kind of almost saying, well, it's all it was all our fault <laughs> in some ways that we. Uh, well, Japan's fault in in creating this uh, this situation where we attack China, etc. And then, um, and I'm thinking, oh wow, this is incredibly rational and things. And then you get into the other side, and there's a, a wax model of, of someone with their skin melting, and that sort of it suddenly becomes really like graphic and intense and grief. Like this wouldn't happen in in, in England. Like it suddenly became incredibly Japanese, actually. Um, and and real is sort of yeah there was the kind of the rational side but also the and they they had interesting I mean they they had a very I I, I talked to the peace museum when we went back in uh, I was you know wondering whether to include an interview with the curator um, as part of the film I mean it became something very different but this that was and I was I was trying to say well you know but. I 
exist only because of the bomb. And he was like, well, you know, I can, as a person, I can see that, but as the museum, I can never agree with that. I can never um, say that anything good has happened from this bombing. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily argue that my existence is good, but it's just a fact, it's just there. Um, and I found that really, really interesting. But, um, that it had to be so sort of dogmatic, I guess, with the, it, which, you know, politically it makes sense because they're, they're campaigning against nuclear armament, against the nu nuclear power, which makes even more sense now when it was filmed before, before the tsunami and the disaster there. So, so it's, it's kind of, it's given it another strange um, potency, I think, the, the, the film with the current, you know, that, that relationship to that, that next natural but then man-made disaster, the kind of the nuclear hell that's, that's still going on there, actually. You know, they're talking about contaminated beef and stuff now, and they say. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but yes. You, you also, in a way, bring in the painful issue of where every country or every person is a victim perpetrator at some level and it's a matter of luck, constitution, societal identity as to how much that's weighed at which end mm. and how very seriously you took that on board. Yeah, I guess, again, that was, that was sort of from that moment when... My grandfather died when I was 14, I think, and during almost the wake period, like there was a week or so where everyone was around at, at his my grandma's house and um, his memoir was being passed around. This, it was kind of a almost hand-typed kind of thing. And, and, um, and of course I read it because it was like, that was all I was thinking about at the time. And... Um, and then for him to write that that coming out of the camps was like a rebirth and that he felt thankful to the bomb and and up till till that point I kind of well you know how could we ever have bombed Hiroshima and this is just a terrible thing done by terrible people and that's obviously all in the past and then suddenly I was implicated within it and it became became part of me to have that conflicted identity in a way to to be thankful for the death of a hundred thousand people I mean that seems ri ridiculous and appalling and almost monstrous really um, and so yeah the child of the atom as a, a figure as this kind of uh, manga inspired alter ego became this embodiment of this kind of confusion of both the, the kind of the monster but almost the the unwitting monster you know did did I just blow up and blow up this place and, and is this is this my my fault <laughs> and but there's also almost a kind of during the explosion itself a, a, a kind of glee in the the destruction I think is kind of there and that's that's sort of a and isn't it something that we all experience looking at war footage it's like god that's awful but wow that's a big explosion you know? mm. yeah and you had the, the the beauty and the shock yeah. and the ugliness of that there mm. in the cartoon form I was thinking of Primo Levis and all the uh, the concentration camp survivors wishing that the allies had bombed in, even if it meant they died <laughs> to not have to carry on living in that way mm. um, and what similarities there were there. But the, the other thought is one that people might find rather um, shocking um, to, to enlarge it to is really the similarity that people feel as an incest survivor to having a generational position over a morally complex war that where the kind of uh, love for the abuser is there as well as the, the hatred and how to deal with that being one of the hardest problems. And I was thinking there was something so moving about you using 
the Japanese uh, manga tradition <laughs> in writing about something where you, through an act of birth, have been forced to be part of um, a historical event, mm. have tried to be kind to everybody um, <laughs> in a way. I don't know um, if it's being kind. It's more. It's more just being honest. It's. It's my my relationship to Japanese culture has been through a, a love of of com- Japanese computer games and Japanese culture through that, and then. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to have my Obama moment now. <laughs> yes, I'm ready um, with a piece of paper. <laughs> I need the chopsticks. <laughs> Um, the um, yeah, just reading the the manga as well, and also um, through through the anime, um, yeah, great. My kind of formative, kind of existential moments in a way were seeing Nirvana at the Kilburn National, age fourteen, and watching Akira in um, my friend's loft, well, um, aged about sixteen. So sort of those those sort of things became really kind of important parts of myself and yet you know this that wouldn't exist as well probably without the bomb so you know here's the, we kind of almost share something across a culture and I think I think also my fascination with with Japanese culture was, was fueled by my um, friendship with a Japanese boy that who, who, who I met at primary school aged about six and we uh, when when he was going away he gave me this little computer game um, kind of uh, just a one game like LCD game I don't know if you remember those but they were things like mm. uh, but anyway it was a baseball and I gave him a tabletop game of cricket <laughs> <laughs> and it was sort of that, that's uh, and we, we stayed in touch through kind of this, this kind of pen pal thing but I always felt there was a kind of strange like, I, I knew that it was not necessarily that it was an awkward relationship in the family that that maybe maybe my my grandfather wasn't i don't know wasn't unhappy with it but it just wasn't simple it wasn't mm. a simple relationship um, one of the yeah. cultural things that you were saying just just before when we were were in the hall next door was your awareness of the cultural position that for the Japanese history, someone that was a prisoner of war was automatically in a dishonourable position because if they were honourable, they would have committed suicide. Mm. So the kind of painfulness of being bilingual, if you like, (laughs) post-war, to see how two opposite cultures collided, which... I was saying to you, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, for anyone that saw that, the sort of mm. painfulness of of there being such a, a difference. I'm, I'm totally lighter, different level. Um, my husband and I were in uh, China a few weeks ago where just to find out that sneezing in public and putting your tissue in your bag was really filthy and you were seen as an object of great dirtiness. And for the Western women having to squat over a hole and put paper in a pail at the side was similarly disgusting at the opposite side and realising us humans all making our own boundaries between what is an object of disgust and what isn't. Mm. And where you have got an environment that allows you to interrogate those two things and see all humans are making the same divisions, but the way they're showing up so differently yeah. is going to lead to calamity in certain circumstances. Yeah, exactly. I mean, being judged by moral codes that that from ex- external sources, you know, in in the in the camps, I think that was is is almost inevitable, isn't it? Um, that there's going to be some I don't know disturbing outcomes. I guess you know there becomes a, a it's like the the prison camp officer only following orders it's it becomes a culture of this is the normal thing to do you know it, it's it's normal to punch your clock in the morning to you know do your do your taxes at certain times to you know to turn on the gas chambers that's that's the the routine 
it's mm. the norm and and or you know now it's it's the it's normal to get a bit of information from phone hacking that's 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 that was the norm and now it's become it's exposed in a certain way and suddenly it becomes the most heinous thing ever um which which I, morally it it is but at the same time it we aren't we all in some ways implicated in it through our enjoyment of these kind of dreadful stories about celebrities which you know yeah. we pretend to hate but obviously consume yeah um so yeah it's uh it's, it, you know it's easy to kind of cut off that limb and say that that's nothing to do with us but if it's kind of of course it is it's, it's, it's part of all of us in some way. And that, that small amount of time packed in all those moral issues um, very, both subliminally and directly in a, in a really powerful way. Are you, when you look at it now, is it saying what you want it to say? Are you feeling pleased with it? Or <laughs> if not pleased, satisfied? It's difficult to... I don't know, and I guess I have lots of hats on in a way. I have I have my my kind of uh, my performance hat on and kind of think, oh, you know, looking a bit silly there. Or I have my editing hat on and think, oh, I left that edit too long. Or uh, uh, and then I have my, my kind of screening hat on and think that's <laughs> I wish this was in in HD. And then um, as a as a film in its entirety, I. I I guess in kind of considering all all circumstances, I would have loved to have worked with Studio Ghibli on the on the animation sequences and maybe with um, maybe a, a kind of I don't know, Kitano on the, the live action or something. It, would, it kind of would have been really interesting to do that, but um, but with with what we did I think it's it's the film I'm most satisfied with so far that I've mm. made. I think it's it's the most kind of complete, self-contained, um, and I guess emotionally kind of um, fulfilled piece that I've done. It kind of, um, and I was really scared to make this piece mm. in many ways because it's you know how do you deal with Hiroshima is such a kind of talk about putting a big like big issue <laughs> thing on it but um, but I thought I thought I had to deal with it just because it's kind of such a central part of if I'm dealing with my identity and identity formation then you know this is such a central part of that jigsaw that it had to I had to tackle it in some way so yeah and it had to be the actual real physical place as well. I thought that was really important mm. that the geographical identification mattered. That you were going back to the scene of the crime, but mm. also of spirits and resilience and grandfather mm. actually managing to survive and <laughs> saying, I have a right to live and <laughs> I have a right to have a family and to not be left like this. Mm. And if there are costs to this, which there are in warfare, so there will be that that voice, that that voice is there, but that it wouldn't have worked if you'd done it from pictures, photographs, or cartoons without being in the actual country. Mm. And I thought the way the trains, the real train and the cartoon train merged, with trains being the key image of the Holocaust as well, and the skyscrapers taking us to 9-11 too, that you'd actually manage the real <laughs> cosmic three generations of, of, of all the major issues. <laughs> But um, yeah, I guess. But in in some ways, I think what I felt I was left with once you know the dust had settled and like oh here's this film and I've kind of put a full stop on it, which only really happened on the day that I was exhibiting it for the first time. Because um, you know I was kind of editing and all oh, there's like a few audio editors there, and, like it just kept being being kind of 
finessed a bit it probably could be some more but it's that this you know this is what it now I've put a, a line under and it's there it is you know it's done is that it's it kind of it stopped becoming so much about just Hiroshima and became much more almost existential that of it being about our relationship to the past and um and yes to conflict or to um to trauma that we're all all kind of products in some way of all these things that are going on around the world that we have no control over and how do we how do we deal with our relationship and our our um Behoovenness, like <laughs> being being indebted to these mm. things that really we would rather never happened if you know if we were faced with the choice of kind of our life or genocide, which would which would you choose? And yeah. and yet you know it's it's there, it's part of us. We you know this this city founded on slavery in some ways, and these kind of this this is all kind of part of of that that kind of uh, historical narrative and how do we um, reconcile those things in you know, the Tate Gallery or anyway <laughs> it's sort of yeah. it's all um, and the child skipping along um, oblivious mm. to certain things and having her own creativity over new life but connected to that so I, I had the sort of Walt Whitman line I am the grass I I cover all, and then thinking, but it was more than a cover-up. This was creative reliving through a resolved generational understanding given. We're not going to find a country at the moment that will have had three generations without trauma, without some war trauma there, and or where there isn't an internal country, if not an external one, that's a no-go area or that's frozen in a nuclear waste be- mm. and too terrifying to visit. And your point at the beginning about geography, that that name conveys more horror um, of Hiroshima than places where many more were killed mm. because that was such a, a shock to the whole human psyche everywhere, the use of a nuclear bomb. Yeah, it became more than a place, it became a symbol, really. Yeah. Um, you know, Nagasaki, as many people died there, but people don't talk about Nagasaki so much. It's much more, you know, the Hiroshima that, that gets the, the headlines, as it were. And um, I'm amazed, in from from my age group, of the uh, Vietnam War being such a formative experience and people go to Vietnam for a lovely holiday and I haven't been able to go there yet because mm. it's still frozen mm. um, with all the newsreels of that period and mm. you, you bring all these things up in such a profound way. Thank you. Um, very, very much indeed. We're, we're very lucky because um, David is generously willing to answer questions <laughs> and comments, thoughts, feelings about the watching of that film. So over to, to you. Anyone willing to start? Yes, hello. I was wondering if your um, daughter um, has since sort of talked about going there or remembers much about it or what her reaction was. Um, she loves watching the film. <laughs> um, we put it on and it's like, oh, you know, it's me and Daddy in the film. And then kind of, oh, should we turn it off? No, don't turn it off yet. How old was she during that? She was um, one, in, one year, nine months oh. around then. So she... And, yeah, the Japanese love kids. So she was treated really, really well. Um, and I think it helped that she had blonde hair and had this hilarious kind of pink outfit and things like that it's just yeah super cute um, especially amongst the uh, school girls and things but um, do you think you'll go back with her at some point uh, yeah I think we probably will you know given the opportunity um, and just because it's such a um, such an interesting place such a kind of foreign yet familiar place it's just a, like the first time you go there it's just such a shock really but but now it's 
I mean, watching the film for me now is almost a nostalgic experience because I'm seeing my daughter younger, seeing Japan. <laughs> it's, like, like, it's sort of, uh, yeah, it's, kind of, it's got very strong, strong memories. And somehow making a record like this of that time, it's sort of a, a strange kind of memento of that moment in her life as much as anything else. Um, and, but I don't think... I don't think she has any specific memories of it. And any memories that she has now, you know, it's like looking at photos of when, I don't know, when I was two or something, and I kind of have a memory around that photo. But is it just a, a whole kind of, I don't know, edifice that I've created around that image? Did it, did, you know, even, it's like often in those sort of memories, you see yourself in the third person and sort of... Um, but I don't, yeah, I wonder. I'll ask her tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering how, why you just, I mean, she's narrating it, isn't she? I mean, yeah. not she isn't, but it's some form of her, I mean, you decided that she will be narrating it. So yes. I'm wondering why you did that and how you think she will feel about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did that as, um, I, I like my works to be self-contained as much as possible. I didn't want there to be a... A sort of, I don't know, like in 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 galleries, like because I come from very much like a an art background, so so my films are mostly seen in galleries, um, and in galleries you often get that little bit of blurb or like kind of thing to explain the piece to get that background story, and I'd much rather that all everything that you needed to know about the work is inside the piece. So I wanted to have some sort of, um, I don't know, first cut Blade Runner esque voiceover um, but but more it was a reference to the Shogun Assassin which is a amalgam of two um, Japanese films um, the um, Lone Wolf and Cub films there were six of them it was based on an, uh, an, kind of a manga from the 70s in which the father and his two-year-old son go around kind of as, uh, kind of uh, masterless samurai doing um, kind of murders for hire in a way um, so he's uh, it's lone wolf and cub so sometimes the, the cub gets involved and kind of hands a spear over and things um, and and when that was in the originals there's no voiceover but when it got turned into an American version um, they cut the first two films together into one film where the main actor actually changes but you know these guys all look alike, you know? <laughs> so, uh, it, about kind of, yeah, one hour in. And to make sense of all the kind of very intricate kind of political dealings, they have the, the child doing a voiceover. And so you have this kind of, you know, when I was little, my father was famous. He was the greatest samurai in the empire. And so from, it was from that kind of voice that I got the, um, the text and the kind of the tone for that voiceover. So it's sort of another layered reference in a way to that <laughs> how will she yeah how will she write that um, yeah it's difficult to know that's the voice is actually of my my cousin's voice she's 18 year old who's um, who lives I, I, I yeah I thought she was perfect because she lived um, in in kind of the Holloway area where, where Phoebe's growing up now so I think she'll probably have quite a similar voice um, and um, yeah, it just took a while to get the right sort of downbeat tone, but it's, um, <laughs> and to get it slow enough, it's kind of because it's a really kind of slow, deliberate delivery that that he has in that film. So, um, and and that she managed to make, yeah, to pretty much recreate. So, and what will Phoebe make of it? I don't know. I th hopefully, she won't be too distressed <laughs> by it. <laughs> Um, this is the new and version. I'm not uh, liking the baby photos. And, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> and in many ways, it's a love, love poem. To her. You know, it's like this. It's 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 about her being born and being alive. This this thing. So, um, you know, she is the, the the seeds from the earth, the rebirth. So, um, yeah. In the film, I was missing mother. It's oh, yes. A, a 
tra quite traumatic to me <laughs> that there were so many men. And where's, where was Mummy? Where's Mum? <laughs> Behind the camera. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, um, yeah, she's the loving gaze. <laughs> it was in... Again, that was, to me, that was a sort of reference to that, that lone wolf and cub situation. Because um, in, in that story, the, um, the, the mother is murdered at the beginning, and then they kind of, that's, and the, the child makes a choice, well, an unknowing choice between life and death by choosing between the ball and the sword. And will you come with me, or will will I kill you now, and then I'll go off by myself? Was kind of the choice, and uh, and the child chooses life um, on the road to vengeance. But um, it's yeah, I guess it's sort of it's quite an alienated vision in a way. This kind of the self, me without Claire, but she's but the yeah. In reality, she's there all the time. She's doing. But we don't know that. No, we don't. <laughs> and you, you are pointing to mm. the fact that because it's about that martial Japanese culture, mm. and then the equivalents in America that dropped the bomb, we're very much looking at a, at different styles of man <laughs> ideas. Mm. So to having have a loving father carrying his little daughter lovingly in a way, is the nearest you get to a maternal image. It's showing you can be a loving father. I, th I think that's a very imp important observation. It's part of the pain of what war is about. Yep. And maybe in a way, I mean, unwittingly, it becomes like there's this missing element in there, just as there's sort of the missing element in Hiroshima itself, you know, the, all the... All the thousands of people that aren't, mm. aren't there and their descendants, it would be millions now because of, you know, the descendants. So um, it's sort of, uh, yeah, that's how, how it makes sense to me, but yeah, it's... Uh, mm. I've really enjoyed the film and I've also really enjoyed the conversation on the different aspects. So I just wanted to add another aspect, which is to do with being of the generation that was a very young child when the bomb was dropped. And I can remember the absolute terror, and probably aged about five, mm -hmm. discussing with another five-year-old in a sandpit about what it meant that somebody could drop a bomb, so that you just didn't exist anymore. And it wasn't just melting flesh, it was turning into an atom, mm -hmm. just so many pieces that you weren't there anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember growing up with that. I think, I can't remember when I stopped worrying about the bomb, but I, I, it doesn't worry me as much right now. I mean, it's become much more... Um, but but I, re I remember as a teenager being absolutely thinking that it was a real... It was a, a, a potential reality. Yeah, it's something that really could happen. Um, I think it was, you know, all that kind of Reagan-era politics stuff. Mm. It was probably the end of the Cold War that made it feel like that maybe was lifted a bit. Um, yeah, uh, the end of the world. It, and the whiteout mm. that you had really <laughs> conveyed that. You become just a shadow. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that was one of the original ideas for the film, was, was just to film shadows. <laughs> In, in the place, but it, uh, yeah, it kind of became that in a sort of different way. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, that's some of the, the, the painfully kind of evocative imagery from Hiroshima is there's a, an image that was imprinted on a bridge where you can actually see that a man's lifted up his whip to kind of get his horses to go fast. You can see the whip in his hand. And it's just, a, it's actually faded now, but it's still, you know, it was, it was there for, for years. That's a kind of a photo etched in. And um, yeah, you can still see bits of granite that were melted by the, by the bottom. It's, it's quite extraordinary. Please. I 
was thinking about your father. Mm. He told you that what you mentioned, that uh, you know what began the film, that you wouldn't have existed. Had oh, grandfather, a lot, yes. your grandfather. Sorry. Yeah. Um, did he? Um, was there anything about the texture and details mm. of that information? Did he tell you things? Did he reminisce? <laughs> did he Not pass much, on but he wrote. He wrote a memoir. Memorabilia. Um, he had, well, the memorabilia he had from the camp was his rice bowl, which was like a tiny little wooden bowl which he used for an ashtray. Um, and he never really ate rice, I seem to remember. Did he ever eat rice? No, never. Um, and um, he didn't really talk about it directly. I don't ever remember him talking about it around the table. Did he, I mean, he, but he did write about it, and in, um, and he also had his camp diaries. He kept a diary while he was there. Amazingly, I mean, it must have been. It was literally scraps of paper, um, which he, he he kept together and then then transcribed many many years later. Um, and but in the in the memoir, he talks. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't go into the detail of the historical fact, of, uh, but his belief was that if um, the war hadn't ended around that time, in that month or so, then he would have died either of dysentery or just starvation. He was literally skin and bones, and people were dying around him, like, a, you know, a person a day, effectively. Um, and there was a point. There's a point in the diaries where he's he he talks about how the previous day he he um, he kind of almost died. He had faced the wall, and once you face the wall, that's it. You've kind of given up. And you, but the, his friend had kind of talked him round out of it. Um, and yeah, so and but then looking at the historical facts of the matter. Um, He's probably right. Um, if there had been a land invasion, it would have taken many more months, probably years, and probably all the POWs would have been massacred in the, in the event of that. Um, and the fact of the bomb meant that, as we were discussing earlier, the emperor was given the possibility of an honourable defeat, in a way. Yeah. Um, the kind of extraordinariness of this, this element, this new bomb, meant that there was a way out without um, Japan being so disgraced that everyone had to kill themselves. Yeah. Um, so, um, but in some ways, the historical fact, to me, don't matter. <laughs> it's the psychological reality of he believed that. And that's, that's what the story's more about, is kind of that transmission of the belief. Like, if he believes that, then, well, then I've got to believe that in some sort of way. And so it, become, you know, it becomes part of family law. And whether the family law is true or not, it becomes a part of you. Whether you kind of accept or reject it, it's still... You know, your discussion with that um, story becomes the kind of the central subject. And, and that's something that I'm really interested in, is kind of how mythologies make us, I guess. You know, the mythology of, of the I, in a way. Um, You've done, in a way, a very um, Rogerian film. I was just thinking, I'd, I'd, if anyone has, has read Carl Rogers, there was Carl Rogers' idea on how... Uh, international politics should be dealt with would was that two leaders should meet and each first had to explain to the satisfaction of the other the position they found themselves in. So only when you had explained the problem the other country had with you in a way that was accepted as that was correct did you then go to the other side to get their position properly stated and then dialogue after that. Mm. 
and in a way, you've sort of made the rice a gourmet dish instead of, <laughs> instead of the ashtray. You've been able to look at the ash on all humans, mm-hmm. but you've also not thrown, you've not thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Mm. Yeah, so I guess, I guess it's, um, I mean, international politics is rather, rather complicated by internal politics. You know, you can't be seen to... Well, often you can't be seen to really listen to the other side because of because then you're almost being a traitor to your your national mm-hmm. position um, and that yeah becomes very fraught that listening becomes very difficult I think uh, I mean, real real communication between countries which is unfortunate um, well I was thinking of of my late father-in-law who felt who just got out of Germany um, a week in time, having been in a concentration camp for a while, and who longed to buy German goods and was so proud of how well they'd been made because he was part of that and felt guilty getting them and something about that split down the middleness. Other thoughts, feelings, comments, questions? Please. Just your last comment about guilt. I'm just wondering, you know, this, this, this thing about generations, generation and differences, uh, transgression, mm-hmm. in terms of survival guilt. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I mean, going back to that statement about I exist because of the bomb. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I wonder... And I, I guess I, I, yeah, since I, I came in, kind of, I was enlightened to the fact <laughs> that I might have, might owe my existence to it. It's, it's kind of been there as a sort of, I don't know, as something to be dealt with, which, which, yeah, I wanted, which led to me going to Hiroshima. So it must have had some sort of, reality to it but whether whether Phoebe will feel that I don't know you know how many how many generations does it does it transmit Mm. in a way and is it is it actually the proximity or is it is it the is it the knowledge you know is the is it's kind of complicated isn't it and you and then David what this leads me to wonder is that there's an intermediary generation between your grandfather and you, and mm. it may be that, you know, I don't want to intrude, but <laughs> your father. Or my mother, yes. I don't oh, know. sorry, I assumed it was your father's father. No, it's my mother's Oh, my your mother's, mother's father. father. Oh. Yes. My mother, the psychotherapist of Anthony Land. Yes, um, well, yeah, what do you think, Mum? Uh, did you, did you... Did you feel the guilt? Did, did you, you yeah. feel this responsibility or did you feel this, um, this as um, David does? I don't think so, no. I'm amazed at how much you've taken him one step on. I mean, my memories are just of, as a small child, being very aware of a certain tension in the house, my, my father your grandfather was, was quite remote as a mm. father, especially in my early years. And um, it was a relief when he did tell us eventually when I was 10 that he'd had this experience. It was never talked about. But the sort of the feeling we were sort of was of somehow being in a prison camp. It somehow mm. made sense. But, uh, it's more that aspect. It's much more that, yeah. That yeah. Trauma, I mean, that, that was the family. That I felt I was brought up in. And mm. you've gone one further thinking about trauma for everybody else. Okay. <laughs> 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 yeah, I was wondering what your own feelings about the bomb were before you knew the story about your grandfather. Um, well, I mean, strongly I, I would say I would say I was, you know, I was but a child <laughs> before I knew. So you know, up to fourteen, you're sort of life's very simple then. <laughs> um, bad things are done by bad people, and as I was 
They couldn't kind of happily said, the bear down happily, that y- is what fiction means. Yeah, and <laughs> and if um and that I couldn't possibly have anything to do with it, I think would be just you know, I remember I was quite I think I was quite a righteous child. I remember at, at primary school that we would everyone was doing different uh projects on different African countries because, you know, it was Kilburn and that's what we did. But that was, um, and mine was on South Africa and the horrors of apartheid. And so, it became, you know, that was, yeah, and, and the teachers loved that, of course. But it was very much like, uh, yeah, I could never have been implicated in that situation, I think, you know. So, yeah, yes. So. Hi, um, does your work often deal with themes of memory and collective memory? Um, I would, yeah, I guess I would see it as, part of all my work in some ways. I mean, I, often it's dealt with through my, my use of sampling things. Like, I, I, I try and... Um, I, I use appropriation in a way to, to, to point at that thing of, well, you know, this is a song, say, that's shared by lots of people and we all have this relationship to it. And yet, what does it mean to have this relationship to it? Um, and so, yeah, I kind of, I guess I see pop culture as a sort of almost a collective memory in some ways. We all go into the cinema, we all, all watch this one thing, and now suddenly we've got a shared memory. We've all seen the same thing for, the, for an hour and a half, and somehow that, that joins us in some mm. way. And if it becomes like a significant film, like, dare I say it, Star Wars or something, it becomes mm. part of lots of people in kind of very different ways. Some people it becomes like a fan obsession, some people it's just a fun film that they watch at Christmas. It's sort of, but you have all these levels of interaction with this same memory and it becomes like a, yeah, kind of a collective unconscious in some ways, these kind of references that kind of echo through. Um, and so, yeah, and, and I guess I've alluded it to it more in previous words. This, this is one of the, the first words where I kind of dealt with it more, more specifically. Um, in terms of the personal and collective memory. Um, I mean, with, with Crossroads, we're going to the, the, the place where Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil. It was much more um, kind of making that link between um, almost the, the blues tourist looking for these kind of this romanticised idea of the musician as almost idiot savant who kind of creates this amazing music without knowing about it and the reality of this music made by professional musicians going around trying to earn a crust uh, that only could have occurred because of slavery and the, the, the movement of peoples and that you know the Rolling Stones are therefore part of this kind of lineage of appropriation and counter-appropriation and um, mm. you know and then kind of yeah it's very yeah strange situation, but yes. Sorry, there was another hand that darted somewhere. No, okay. <laughs> um, oh, there oh, we it's... are. I'm not sure whether there's a question buried in here or not. But I've been. Um, I'm a physicist, and I was wondering whether you had ever thought about the the scientists that developed the the atom bomb and mm-hmm. what they went through and how they reconciled that, you know, to themselves. I mean, the one that I've read about most is Frank Oppenheimer, the brother of Robert, who was so terrified of being defined by this event that he spent the, ne- the rest of his life becoming a science educator mm-hmm. to get away from that association. And mm-hmm. I wonder if you've gone into that at all. Um, it's something I'm really interested in. Um, I, I always thought that maybe there was um, kind of room for that, that quote about, you know, I'm the destroyer of worlds, the, um, that, was it the other Otto Oppenheimer? I think They're it was his... working on it, I think. Yeah. But one of them, one of them said, you know, I'm, I'm become the destroyer yeah. um, when they first saw some of the tests. And, um, and bizarrely, I mean, there's almost a, yeah, there's kind of a, a follow-on. The, the person who 
presided over the crossroads tests, which were straight after World War II, 1946, in Bikini Atoll, um, where they kind of were testing bigger and bigger bombs in, in, on water, was uh, Admiral Blandy. And it sort of, so there seems this kind of strange sort of weird link between yeah, the atomic situation and all these kind of different stories going on. Um, and it's something I hope to tackle in a kind of new anime series that I want to make <laughs> of <Yeah>. all things. <laughs> but yeah. Because it's kind of shocking to me that, um, yeah, Oppenheimer has equations named after him and stuff like mm. that, and you just, you don't connect it, you don't connect the two at all. Mm. 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 Yeah. Yeah, we all. I guess we all need impetuses to do things, and you know, sometimes it's an impetus from something hor- horrendous, kind of keeps people active um, in an amazing way. I was just wondering if you have much chance to speak to local Japanese people in Hiroshima and tell them about the project that you were doing there and what their reaction was. Yeah, I mean, I, I had there was the Hiroshima Film Commission, which is two people. <laughs> one of whom seems to actually do anything, um, <laughs> um, kept, um, helped me get the locations and kind of um, and got me into the Peace Museum, etc. And we, we had several chats about it, and she thought it was a really interesting project. And she she lived in Hiroshima many, I think she was born there. So yeah, kind of. But then she also I I wanted at the time to have a conversation with a contemporary like say like third generation um, person from Hiroshima and talk about their relationship to it and so I met up with this this guy in in a cafe and and we had a chat and he was a real anglophile loves the Beatles and the Kinks and stuff and wore kind of a a strange kind of uh, cool suit and stuff Um, and he you know he was talking about how really the past was almost was rarely talked about in, in his family. That you know there were some um, ongoing health issues within the family, and his uh, fa- his grandfather had helped people immediately after the bomb and kind of got people out, and but um, had never seemingly got any um, really bad effects from that. He lived till he was seventy, I think. So so, but his mother always had kind of lots of lung problems and things. But it was but. Really, it was much more a kind of a meeting of minds and, you know, just common interest, really, rather than, yeah, he was intrigued by it, I think, rather than kind of horrified or, or kind of I don't know, amazed. I think, I think, yeah, Hiroshima is sort of, it's a, it's a very proud city, you know, they're very proud of their baseball team and things, so it's a, the carp. Go Carp. Um, it's, it's a great place. Everyone should visit. <laughs> Last question. Can you say a little bit more about the Japanese cartoon character? What can you put into words? What are you saying? <laughs> Well, um, I've worked with this Japanese illustrator for a while. This, um, she's called Inko, and um, she did a comic version of one of my previous films where um, I'd taken on another alter ego, the Barefoot Lone Pilgrim, searching the world for soul records. And she, she kind of turned that into a nice little manga. And um, so when I started on this project... Um, I, I kind of I, I wanted to create an alter ego for for this one too, and it's uh, yeah the idea of the child of the atom sort of made sense. It's sort of a, a sly allusion to X Men and things, but also Atom Boy and stuff. But um, then the outfit I wanted it to be quite kind of almost like accidental hero outfit, sort of like a t shirt and jeans. And then, but then with this kind of tied-on cape, which could be like a, a kind of uh, just a bedsheet or something, but it's red. You know, it's, it's just tied it on like a knot. And um, the 
but that's also a reference to one of the characters in Akira who gets these kind of horrific powers and he does the same thing he kind of creates this this uh, knotted cape I think because it, it makes his movements more dramatic on, in the cartoon you know as, which is you know why why all superheroes have capes isn't it so they look cool flying but um and yeah, but still with the glasses and sort of in that sort of, I mean, I beefed up quite significantly in <laughs> certain frames, um, and and kind of more kind of evil, kind of uh, like from yeah the kind of evil versions of certain computer games. They kind of get these kind of weird glint in their eyes and pale skin and things. Um, and then there's the symbol on the T-shirt, which is sort of a, an adaption of the symbol of the atom it's like a nucleus with a thing going around it um so yeah that was that was the kind of finishing touch and then once you had that it was like you know i, I initially i thought maybe i'd wear that costume when i got out there as well so but um in the end it made more sense to be the kind of the clark kent there and the uh, child of the atom in the kind of fantasy sequences in a way and people probably know that, that, that most of the superheroes um, invented by Amer in America were all the product of refugees from the Holocaust. That mm. in facing extreme helplessness, mm. the longing to have a superhero that could represent you to get out of that. So, so the, the, the way trauma is international in the crossover <laughs> over the, the meaning of the art is, mm. is, is so effective. Yeah, the the. Uh... We haven't touched on thousands of things, including <laughs> the music and your past work on hip hop, and okay, we've yeah. just started to go into the meaning of using the manga more. We've got the geographical meaning of location, mm. identity, and we could obviously all carry on a lot longer this evening. But thank you for both your generosity in speaking and also for doing something that isn't spoken about that what the film does in naming things that are too often left well i was i was telling you about the french ghastly word an oubliette a place to forget people it was the prisons from the 17th century you just dumped somebody underground and let them starve to death you forgot about them um so to actually have, to, to remember, remembrance is so precious as a healing generational act as well. And you've given us a lot to visually think about as well as all the, the cultural meanings. And we'll look forward to seeing your next films. Thanks very much. Thank, Thank you. you and thanks Thank you. to Rowan Arts.